This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Welcome to Future You. I'm Michael Horn. Excited to do this podcast, particularly because we have one of our favorite people in the higher education landscape, uh, Paul Friedman, who we both call uh, a boss sometimes uh, uh, because he's the uh, founder, of course, uh, and CEO of the Entangled Group, where we both hang our hat for a little bit uh, every every single day. And uh, Paul is a serial entrepreneur in education. He has been a uh, watcher of the big trends in higher ed for a long time and just excited to have you on the show, Paul. Uh, First of many, I hope. Very excited to be here. So, Paul, how did you, um, you know, you've been in, in education a, a long time, but uh, you know, one of the questions we ask almost all of our guests is, how did you actually get started in this world of, of higher education? Because and, and why have you stayed in it so long? Yeah, uh, um, you know, I actually started in higher education kind of before I was born. You know, my, 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 my family was in higher education. My uh, father was a physics professor. My mother worked in research administration, and my, I grew up on college campuses. Uh, and that uh, environment, that culture has always been inspiring to me uh, in a number of ways. And when I went to college myself, I got exposed to another aspect of the college experience, which is that you don't have to grow up with you know, uh, faculty members as parents to sort of have access to the college environment. If You could be first in your family to go to college. And once you're at that experience, you are, you know, sort of a member of, of, of the community and you're a member of, of a community that opens up access to a whole different part of society. And, you know, from that moment, I became, you know, very passionate about doing things that expand access, lower costs, increase the efficacy of, of higher education. And I've you know, kind of done that as a uh, education entrepreneur for my entire career. You've described yourself uh, often in, in terms of that entrepreneur um, uh, title, if you will, that you've given yourself as in a different part of the world from the one that your parents obviously inhabited with higher education. Can you describe that, uh, w- what being an entrepreneur in this space means to you? I, um, yeah, it means that my mother will always ask me if I'm going to finish school, um, <laughs> for, 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 for one. Um, uh, it, you know, I think uh, there's various different definitions of an entrepreneur. I, I think the one that I like best um, uh, is, you know, somebody who can imagine commanding resources that are not at their direct disposal, right? They can sort of imagine, a, a, you know, a, a world of, of creation using uh, resources and, and, and using opportunities that they can't dictate the, 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 the response to. And, you know, sort of, uh, I, I think that's very much sort of who I am or who I, who, inspi- who I aspire to be. And the problems that I, you know, try to address are ones that are, you know, uh, that affect education, which is the, in, you know, the, the community that I care about. So what do you see as the most pressing problems right now facing higher education or that higher education needs to solve in society more broadly? Yeah, I'm, the, I think the, the, the problem we have as a society, which is broader than higher education, but for which higher education could be the solution to, is that uh, talent is more evenly distributed than is opportunity. And that's a human productivity problem, right? If, you, if we have a situation where we end up with opportunity going to a caste system to people who aren't deserving of it, uh, you know, we end up not being as productive as human beings, right? And I think, higher, I, I think that's the problem that we're trying to solve or that I, I spend every day trying to solve. I think higher education is the best pathway to solve that problem. 
So is that solved within traditional higher ed? Because as we look at uh, traditional higher education uh, institutions, you know, the places, the campuses that have been around for, in some cases, hundreds of years, um, we see in some cases they're perpetuating that inequality, right? There's numerous studies over the last couple of years that basically show the most elite colleges and universities in this country uh, essentially uh, uh, emit and enroll uh, essentially the elite of of the country. And so if we're going to try to evenly distribute uh, that opportunity, does that happen within those traditional colleges and, and universities, or do you see kind of a new um, a learning economy growing up uh, around and, and eventually maybe even disrupting uh, traditional colleges and universities? Yeah, I think the simple answer is yes, no, and both. <laughs> uh, um, I think that tradition, you're absolutely right. You know, look, uh, the, the, the very elite universities were never just designed to be you know, democratizing forces. They were designed by definition to be elite and exclusionary forces, right? That's what they're des- they were designed to be. But their quality has created the whole brand around higher education, right? That, you know, that is that what trickles down to everything and it, what, what creates the great power of the, of the classic diploma and cannot be ignored when you think about, uh, you know, innovating or the next generation. So I think the elite institutions sort of have to be part of the, the kind of democratizing story um, but you're absolutely right that more likely access will be created by institutions that were not designed to be elite, institutions that, you know, uh, might not be traditional kind of at all in a classic sense. So uh, what are some of the biggest hurdles, do you think, um, to uh, to change at traditional colleges and universities? It's clear they need to change. Yeah. Um, many of them blame external factors, right? When I, when I talk to colleges and universities, they complain about accreditation, which I know is a favorite subject of yours. Uh, they, they blame... Uh, uh, financial aid regulations at the federal level. They love to blame outside forces. Um, sometimes they look internally. But as you think about the, the challenges and the, uh, and the opportunities, what are some of the biggest hurdles that you think are facing uh, traditional colleges and universities? Well, I don't disagree that some of those challenges are challenges. Okay. And, you know, it's, it's never too early for me to talk about accreditation. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, first and foremost, there's a cultural problem and within, and the, within, within, within the, the colleges within the colleges within the themselves college, right. and, and there's and there's and there's two facets of it um you know w- w- one is just a sort of you know sort of what ends up happening with any kind of community that establishes traditions is that the traditions themselves become the rule as opposed to what was underpinning why the tradition was in place and then people start to behave in certain ways with ignoring what the underlying principle is so mm-hmm. an example of that is academic freedom you know academic freedom is one of the most important parts of higher education culture. And it comes from a really important place, which is that, you know, our society seems to move in these waves between, you know, enlightenment and dark ages. And you, you know, you, if you want a institution of higher learning, you want that to be able to teach whatever is unpopular at the time, um, as long as that there's, you know, it's, it's sort of principled from a, from a um, discipline perspective. And so that the, the freedom to be able to teach what you want in the classroom and to write about what you want, research what you want about it is very important. But that was never intended to be a freedom from accountability, right? But, at, but after cycles and cycles of, you know, just talking about academic freedom, it gets to be expanded to sort of everything. And, and that makes it difficult to then put, uh, you know, accountability measures in place or systems in place that, that run afoul of that tradition, even though the tradition has moved very far from the, the underpinning. And I think that's a problem. I think at elite institutions have a secondary problem, which is, you know, there are very few brands, you know, uh, human existence is so fragmented that there are very few names that most of the humanity knows. Harvard happens to be one of those names, right? Um, and so imagine working for an organization that is, so, you know, that, that everybody knows, 
um, you know, that brand is actually a huge handcuff on what you can do, right? You weren't there when Harvard was built. You weren't part of building it. You're lucky to work there, right? Um, and so the the thing you fear most is doing something that could harm that brand. So they're risk averse as a result. Uh, tremendously yeah. risk averse. And 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 you know the 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 first principle of being an entrepreneur is to be open to failure. I mean, it's you're more likely to fail than succeed, and you're more likely to, to learn in, in in failure anyway. And that's sort of part of the journey. And so anytime you're thinking about um, you know innovation or change being fa- uh, afraid of failure is not a very good construct to be successful. So I think that's a great diagnosis of what sort of caused these places to struggle, uh, the, the broader system of higher education, really any system that's been around for decades, that's what causes it to calcify and so forth. The, the tougher question maybe, but maybe not, depending on your perspective, is how do you start to move that and change that? And so how, do you, how are you thinking about that these days? You, you've obviously been in this field, as you said, for years uh, what do you see as the biggest opportunities to move that forward right now? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I think it's pressures from outside and pressures from within. Um, you know, I think there's, I think, uh, you know, you do a lot of work, Michael, in, in the, the, you know, the, the classic theory of disruption. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the and, and high, high, sort of higher education institutions have begun to bristle at the concept of disruptive, disruptive innovation. Yeah. But, you know, dis, disruptive innovation, innovation that really threatens core institutions is a nice forcing function to change. You know, people start to... to um, uh, you know, to move a little faster when they're lir- worried that the, their market share is going to be uh, in, is going to be reduced, and we've seen that with things like boot camps, which initially came from out without the side of the system, and are now you know a number of traditional institutions are launching boot camps sort of underneath the, the, the auspice, and I think it's going to become also comes from change with, with within, and mm-hmm. and and first and foremost, you know, institutions that have been able to figure out how to change their operating culture to incentivize and prioritize innovation. You know, you have them. Uh, Michael Crow on and, and and President Sorrell on and you know a couple of examples of leaders who've been able to do that within their institutions. And so right, so how do you do that? So if you were uh, running an institution and you had to create this culture of of entrepreneurship or change uh, or innovation within the institution, how would you go about uh, uh, doing that? Yeah, I mean, I've I've been trying to study this because I think it's a it's a really interesting problem and and you know looking at the current cases and looking at. You know, even like USC and Northeastern institutions that were innovative, um, you know, sort of decades ago, and in, in ways that we sort of forget. It seems to me that it takes at least two people. <laughs> it, you know, it, it takes a, it takes a. Um, and do those people have to be at the top? Do they have to be the president and provost, for example? I, so far, that's the pattern that I found. That they have to be not necessarily the president and the provost, but you know, something like that equivalent. The, pre- the president and and a you know somebody who runs uh, you know online op- operations at a major scale, or the provost. But most someone likely. who has access to budget and academics and. So so forth. Somebody who has access to budget, who somebody who can herd the cats uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, of sort of the, you know in, the internal folks, and and then what ha- seems to happen is that at you know some point the um, the value structure shifts and innovation becomes prioritized, right? And 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 um, you know what's amazing about uh, you know faculty members is they're, 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 they tend to be very talented, very hardworking, very ambitious in, in ways. And if the incentive structure is to prioritize innovation or to, to prioritize uh, students' service or whatever the value construct you want to create, you know, once that's in place, you're going to see you know, tons of ground-up innovation, and in, in you've see, you, we've seen it happen at those institutions. So flipping around now, we're, we have a few minutes left with you. Uh, we've been talking a lot about inside of higher ed institutions. As we start to think about the entrepreneurs and uh, those who are innovating outside of higher ed, where do you see the big opportunities there? You're a serial entrepreneur. You're a serial investor in this space. What, what, what gets you excited right now? I, mean, I think there's, there's from an investor perspective, you know, anytime you're at an inflection point in something as 
uh, ubiquitous in society is higher education, you get to be excited. And we fundamentally are. You know, my, my view is our society has made a transition to a knowledge economy and our higher education system hasn't quite kept up yet. Mm-hmm. And that creates all sorts of opportunities for change. I think the places that we're tracking most closely right now are, you know, in an area we call uh, higher education employer interoperability. It's sort of the intersection of, you know, higher education and career. Um, and I, my point of view is we kind of have a, a dysfunctional um, uh, hiring system that's interfacing with a higher education system that's that's becoming increasingly dysfunctional at uh, demonstrating talent and signal, mm-hmm. and those two things are interoperating at a you know increasingly poor level. Yep. And there's going to have to be a lot of point solutions, uh, vertical solutions, horizontal solutions that that sort of operate in that space. To bridge that chasm, in other words, and and, and, and both do you, do you see that going in so f- so far as to actually influence how hiring managers at companies are thinking about job postings and how they think about talent and so forth? Yeah, and I, 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 absolutely. I mean, one of the, one of the things from you know sort of journeys in other communities is there's been a lot of finger pointing at higher education for being bad at, at uh, understanding what uh, employers want. And I think some of that's very appropriate. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think, uh, you know, uh, universities could do more of sort of looking at I- I- I employers and asking good questions. But if you do spend time going to employers and asking questions about what they're looking for, you know, they're not particularly well informed either. Right. Right. And so there's there's, you know, there's dysfunction sort of on both sides of that very critical exchange. And I think there's a, you know, will be a lot of exciting opportunities for entrepreneurial activity. And so, uh, Paul, you know, one of the things, and I agree with you that, you know, we're kind of in, in this era now of, of lifelong learning, that the future of work is really changing uh, the course of learning and that employers, particularly in the signal uh, question that you bring up is, is going to be critically important. But higher education obviously is not an inexpensive uh, operation right now. You know, students and, and are paying a lot of money at the undergraduate level, at the graduate level, at the professional training level. If, if education is going to be more lifelong and continual, um, there becomes a question, it, it either we have to figure out new ways of paying for it or we have to figure out new ways of, of lowering its price, correct? Uh, and both. And both. Uh, yeah, and, and new, new, new payers. I mean, I think one of the, mm. the, 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 you mm. know, the, the questions you should What always, do you mean by that, new payers? Well, look, you know, one of the, the, the fundamental questions of education is who, sort of who it's for, and that's a debate. I don't know that we've decided, right? Is it, is it for the individual? Is it for you, society? So, I mean, we may not have voted on it, but do you, don't you think that it, it, a lot of people now think it's the individual uh, good, and, and that's that's well, who should support it. No, I think there's a little bit of an exchange between it, people who believe it's sort of a societal good, and th- that's why there's a public investment in it. And there's people who believe it's an individual good, and that's why it's it's individual pay, and even the nature of the societal investment flows through the individual. But there's another beneficiary, which is the employer, mm-hmm. um, and there's you know that there's an employer propensity to pay. Um, for the for the for what the, the value that they're receiving, I think that's another source of, of capital in the system, and I think you're going to see. You know, I think you're already starting to see models that leverage in, employer pay, mm-hmm. and particularly as you go to lifelong learning. I think you know the thing about for-profit companies is their incentive structure is pretty easy to figure out. They're in business to make profits, right? And so, uh, you know, if if it could be articulated in ways that prove out in terms of return on investment that. Uh, lifelong investment in their human capital, lifelong learning will return to the bottom line. You'll see more investment being made, and I think that's an or- another source of capital. But that, but I also agree that even with more money uh, flowing in the system, technology will have to continue to do the thing that technology does, which is uh, provide opportunities for scale and provide opportunities for lowering costs. 
Paul, in just 15 minutes, we've uh, scratched a lot of surfaces, and it just uh, leads me hungry for, uh, for, for more questions and conversation with you. So I, I hope you'll agree to uh, come back on and uh, chat with us sometime. I will come back at any time, but hopefully later in the day. Yeah, ter- 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 <laughs> terrific. And for those listening, it's 7 a.m. So thanks, Paul, for joining us. And we'll be back after this break on Future You. This episode of Future You was made possible with support from the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University and is the premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. For more information and to apply to our next cohort, go to georgetown.asu.edu. This episode was also made possible with support from the Entangled Group, where innovation meets operations. Entangled is a venture studio focused on helping the education ecosystem transition to support the knowledge economy. We build companies and nonprofits that support higher education institutions as they innovate to carry out their critical missions for society in the 21st century. Welcome back to uh, Future You, and I'm here with uh, Michael Horn. That was a great conversation with uh, with a good friend of ours, uh, Paul Friedman, uh, who is uh, you know been known as a as an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur in, in in education. And it's great that he talked a little bit about his his background because we meet a lot of entrepreneurs. But I think his background, given uh, that he you know grew up in a, an academic family essentially as an academic brat, and that's always a, a good <laughs> term, I think. Uh, 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 maybe maybe changes his perspective a little bit on uh, on on this field. I think. That's right. It gives him an appreciation uh, for the richness and history of higher ed in a way that's not just homage to what's come before, but an understanding of why it's come before. And that's whenever I sit with Paul, that's what I take away from it is this deep search for why things are the way they are and then say, okay, if that's a principle and that makes sense. What's the right manifestation of that for the current era uh, of what we're trying to accomplish and his his devotion to really using higher ed to change family trees is something that, you know, the first time I met him was at uh, the ASU GSV conference probably eight, nine years ago and uh, on, on, on a roof deck back when it was at Sky Song at Arizona State. And it was the first thing he said to me. It was, I grew up on a college campus. I love these institutions. And this is what they can do for families. And so what do you think other entrepreneurs in the ed tech space who sometimes come from totally different backgrounds and sometimes maybe were an entrepreneur in a whole different field and saw an opportunity in in education? And I think that's what sometimes bothers, I think, people in higher education institutions in particular is that they just see someone in here maybe – uh, you know, has a, a pretty good idea, but here to make a quick buck and then go to move on. Like what lessons do you think other entrepreneurs could learn from, uh, from somebody like Paul Friedman? I think the first thing is that there's not a quick buck to be made. Uh, right. So if, if well, that's, that's for your, sure, <laughs> and I think know, most educational entrepreneurs have learned that, that. Uh, right. And, and so if you think that's the mindset, you know, you're in the wrong field. Right. right? And so I think that that's one and two is having a deep devotion uh, to student uh, mission of institution, societal purpose, and actually, you know, P- Paul, I thought he, he was introspective on this question and not willing to stake a claim of is it for is higher ed for the individual? Is it for society? Is it for the employer? And I think deep down, he believes that there's mixes for all of those things. And so having that healthy respect, and then knowing what that means for innovation, what are the institutions going to be capable of? What's going to require change? And, and look, you know, a big thesis behind Entangled is that Venture capital is an inappropriate uh, uh, mechanism 
for uh, higher education investment because it's looking for fast returns and education is not a fast return space. And that's that those long timelines. Uh, he, he, he criticized some of the uh, risk averseness, but uh, some of those long timelines are actually important safeguards and important uh, qualities of these right. institutions that have lasted centuries. Like, for example, he talked about academic you know, freedom and the, and the need for it because, you know, we move from periods sometimes in the, in the, in the country of enlightenment and, and the dark days. We didn't ask him where we are uh, <laughs> uh, today. But, but, you know, he talked about the need for that. And, and I sometimes think that uh, academic freedom is used uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a hurdle um, to change in, in higher education. And I think sometimes it's a false hurdle, right? Sometimes people just say, well, we can't do this um, because we have to go to the faculty and we don't want to ask the faculty's uh, permission. And I think part of the problem now with shared governance has it's operated, because I think it's truly broken on many campuses. And how it's operated on most campuses is that, you know, Shared governance, the way it's supposed to work on most campuses, is that you elect leadership. Um, they have a, a handbook. They have rules of engagement with the administration uh, of things that they're supposed to approve. But what ends up happening is that, first of all, most faculty don't really pay attention to that that administrative or that representative structure until it affects them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly they think they get to say, they get to have a say on everything, right? Like where you're going to put parking on campus and, and everything else. And so most presidents get worn down, I think, by this, by this process because the faculty who have decided we're going to have this representative body, um, most of the time either ignore it or they just go around it. Um, and, and to me, that is not a, a good example of, of, of shared governance and, and how it should operate on, on most college campuses. This isn't the question I was going to ask you, but hearing you just <laughs> uh, riff on that made me think of it. Do you think we see obviously a tremendous churn among presidents of colleges and universities do you think it's more because of external forces, boards, and things like that, or because actually of the shared governance process uh, and working with faculty that that maybe uh, creates change resistance uh, when they know that they need to uh, create change? I, I think it's a combination of both. I think we have we have presidents who are really stuck in the middle between a boards of trustees, and you know, and I sit on a board of trustees now, so I kind of see this. Who are really impatient. Um, and really want to move the needle faster. Uh, and, 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 and faculty who really see themselves as kind of the keeper of the flame, right? When you talk to most faculty, they say, we've been here before this president and we'll be here after this president. And we've been here before this board and we'll be here after this board, right? And so in many ways, you have uh, these two countervailing forces uh, bearing down on the president. And, and many presidents who are new to the position um, I, th- I think this is why I think, you know, some of the best experience uh, for a president is, A, somebody who's dealt with a board before, um, because I think that's critically important, and somebody who's been um, either on the faculty or dealt with faculty governance before. Because if you, if you have neither of those things, I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's really difficult um, uh, for, to be in that job. I'm really curious one other question on the academic freedom side, uh, Jeff, which is it seems to me that academic freedom is absolutely important to be able to ask the research questions you want to ask to be able to explore the areas you want to explore. But it's also used by faculty members to say, don't tell me how to teach. And we're having tremendous breakthroughs right now in the learning sciences around how to reach individuals and help them learn better, more expeditiously, etc. And it seems to me at least in the rhetoric, that sometimes faculty members say, keep that out of here too, because that's interference also. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, and I do, and I think it's a lot about approach. You know, I was with Charles Isabel yesterday, actually, who's, uh, who, you know, started the, um, uh, 
online master's degree in uh, in computer science at Georgia Tech, the one that's gotten a lot of uh, a lot of press. And and you know, one of the things he talked about is that. They have, the, they have the coalition of the willing there that, that started that, right? And there were some faculty members against it. Now, of course, now that it's doing well, he said basically every faculty member said, oh, I was always for this, right? It's amazing how when things work out, like everybody was always you know, for it. Right Success from the is beginning. always a good yeah, deodorant, exactly. as they say. Uh, and so, so I think that part of this is that you, know, you need to start you – know, that's why I think – Innovation needs to start within specific departments or within specific schools. Uh, I think the risk tolerance is higher there. I think that you know, if you fail, you know, it, it doesn't affect the entire college or, or university. And then I think you scale those uh, issues uh, or those ideas from there. I think any time you try to start this from the president's level on down, I think the president sets the narrative, they set the scene, they set the culture. But any time you try to push this from the top down, um, I think that's a recipe for disaster when it comes to, to shared governance. So if we can uh, square that with uh, Paul's comment, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, I, I, my sense is president absolutely important to say, hey, we're innovating, but then not to say we're doing it across all the university tomorrow, yes. everyone flip over their jobs, but actually to pick your and choose your spots carefully, create your new innovations where you have to create it from scratch carefully, uh, incubate in coalitions of the willing and so forth, but really be the uh, 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 chooser, if you will, of, of those spots and, and, and make sure you're, you're, you're being opportunistic. Is and, that and a good I, yes, swearing? and I think you can also do that quickly, right? So I think when, when people hear that a narrative <laughs> you just uh, spelled out, they think, oh, that's why it takes so long to do right. things in higher ed. I think you can do all of that with speed. Well, those issues and more are all things to be explored next time, Jeff. So uh, I hope you'll continue to join us. And if you like the show, Make sure to rate us wherever you are listening and subscribe. Uh, That helps us find uh, more listeners. So more listeners mean more interesting content, more access to interesting guests. And until then, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.